0: This is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney at Play podcast. We return to a multi-part series we're hosting on the heritage of Disney Springs at Walt Disney World. In this podcast, we look at the advent of Pleasure Island. Here, we study its history since opening in 1989 adjacent to the Walt Disney World Village. Running next to the Empress Lily, this attraction took on the role of competing against Church Street Station in downtown Orlando. We look at the attractions, restaurants, shops, that were all part of this experience, and we bring you personal memories of Pleasure Island in its heyday, both as an annual pass holder and also as a cast member at Walt Disney World. Finally, we take a look at the downfall of this attraction and why it no longer exists today. As part of our podcast, you're going to want to check out disneyatplay.com. There you will see, and not only an outline of what we're talking about, but a lot of visuals, a lot of videos, and a lot of links to, um, to some of the things that we're going to be addressing or talking about today. Um, and by the way, while you're there Disney at disneyatplay.com, Uh, make sure that you subscribe so that you can be notified of upcoming posts and podcasts as they uh, become available to you. Uh, We should uh, note that this seven-part series actually started like two years ago. I can't believe I'm just now finally getting into the next segment of it. Um, The segment that follows will be about Disney's West End, and then we'll go into an in-depth look at the actual um, experience today as it now exists. Um, And by the way, there's a link to that Disney Village Marketplace and how the whole thing kind of got started back in the early 70s. First off, let's talk a little bit about um, Pleasure Island and how it um, got its roots. Why do we call it uh, Pleasure Island? Well, it's two words, pleasure, and island. The land the island sits on is first and foremost not an island. Water has simply been carved out around the land to kind of build up the space and give water drainage. The idea of the island, quote unquote, came largely from the popular Granville Island in Vancouver, British Columbia, which was a public market that added entertainment offerings back in the 1980s. It was a well-received and very popular, so why not build an island at Disney? And what about the title's comparison to a certain dangerous funfair in Pinocchio? Well, Disney liked the innuendo, but always claimed it was based on Meriwether Pleasure. Now, I don't talk a lot about the whole Merriweather Pleasure story. Others have gone into detail. I find that 99.5% never knew the backstory of Pleasure Island. I know Imagineers like to talk about the idea that everything's got a story. But frankly, most people, especially when you gave them a drink, never knew Anything about this backstory, which seemed more as a, a way to uh, separate it from the Pinocchio story and say, 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 it's really not about the Pinocchio Pleasure Island. It's really a separate Pleasure Island. Just to give you a sense of what that story is Pleasure Island is founded in 1911. It's quote unquote a living monument to the wise fool, the mad visionary, the scoundrel, the scalawag, and seeker of enjoyment, Meriwether. Adam Pleasure, who purchased the island in 1911, Pleasure's profitable canvas manufacturing/sale fabricating empire founded on this site provided him with the capital to indulge his lifelong interest in the exotic, the experimental, and the unexplainable, known as the Grand Funmeister. Pleasure disappeared during his 1941 circumnavigation of the Antarctic. His sons, Harry and Stewart took over the island and the Pleasure Enterprises. Their mismanagement led to bankruptcy in 1955. Hurricane Connie hit the same year and Pleasure Island was abandoned. In 1987, archaeologists uncovered the site and its remains, and a large-scale reclamation project was begun. In 1989, the new Pleasure Island was reopened and dedicated to the legacy of Meriwether, Adam Pleasure, quote, fun for all and all for fun, end of quote. Now, just so you have a little bit of a sense of this, each of the buildings around the island each had a little backstory to some kind of um, operation or activity or um, business that uh, Meriwether, Adam Pleasure had. But again, and there were plaques around the build room around the around the facility, but frankly, I found all of it to be really irrelevant to anything. Uh, notwithstanding, Disney would always make the claim that's how we kind of get the island aspect of it. So let's go back to the beginning to understand how this concept came to be and how it became part of the entire Walt Disney World experience. To understand this, you have to appreciate all that came out of what Michael Eisner would refer to as the Disney decade, a Disney decade that actually really got underway in 1989. This opened at the same time that Disney's Hollywood Studios opened and Typhoon Lagoon opened just uh, just about a month later. And so this was a big, set of projects that really were to kick off what would be the Disney decade. And to understand the Disney decade is to essentially understand competition, because everything that was built between that moment and all the way up through the remainder of Michael Eisner's tenure usually had to do with competition. That resort, that park, that attraction was in competition with something else in the Orlando area. And we can do, we will do a whole podcast around that competition thing. But the com- the competition in this sense was a location called Church Street Station, which was located, still located, kind of, downtown. Many of the buildings are still there. There are remnants of it, there's still nightclubs or dining or uh, event space in that area. But this this little place became quite popular. And when Walt Disney World was kinda, I don't know, turning off its lights like nine o'clock at night right after the fireworks, if there were fireworks in those days, a lot of nights they didn't have fireworks. Back in that time, it was like, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? So Disney felt very strongly it needed to create an entertainment hub that would build um, that, that together with people who wanted to be up at all hours of the night, there could be momentum. It needed to be far away or away far enough from nearby resorts so as to not keep everybody up at night. And by the way, this Disney Village Marketplace is a the little town. So what if we were to add to that complex? Maybe that would help uh, bring in um, even greater revenue to the Disney Village Marketplace and there'd be some synergy between those two sets of activities. I want to read from you from Birnbaum's guide to give you a sense of, um, of the... Overall property, a six-acre island entertainment complex with nightclubs, restaurants, shops, and movie theaters fill the need for evening and late-night entertainment options for Walt Disney World guests. Pleasure Island is connected to the Disney Village Marketplace by three footbridges. There are seven nightclubs, several restaurants, an unusual variety of shops, and the AMC Multiplex Cinemas. The nightclubs open at about 7 p.m. and don't close until 2 a.m. The Pleasure Island shops are open from 10 a.m. to 1 a.m. and the restaurants are open from about 11.30 a.m. to midnight. So let me just stop there and say, yeah, you see there's a confusion as to when things are open and when things are closed, just right then and there. But it gets worse. And this, by the way, is a 1996 um, official guide. It had already been through some variations, but just to get a sense of the price model, what that looked like, there is no fee to enter Pleasure Island premises, its shops or restaurants until 7 p.m. After 7 p.m., a single admission of $15.95 allows access to all clubs and the nightly street party spectacular. Length of stay passes and five-day World Hopper Passes include Pleasure Island admission. Guests under 18 must be accompanied by a parent. Tickets are not required for Portobello Yacht Club or the Fireworks Factory, or for that matter, AMC Theatres, which kind of were outside of this district. Remember, the drinking age in Florida is 21. Underage guests who are over 18 will be admitted to the clubs, except mannequins, but not served alcohol a valid U.S. foreign or international driver's license with a photo, an active, active U.S. military identification card or a passport must be presented as proof of it. You see, it's just complicated who gets in and what doesn't and what happens and when you can go and when you can't go. And all of this adds to some of the challenges that Pleasure Island had from day one, um, which we're not gonna talk about city walk until the end but just so you know, it was a whole lot cleaner. Just it was free to go into City Walk. There were nightclubs; you might pay for them. There might be drink minimums, but you could go through City Walk and experience it and not have to pay a cover charge. So, this was probably one of the challenges to Pleasure Island. Um, but notwithstanding, uh, it was a fairly successful venue for a number of years. And uh, the best way to understand what led toward its success is probably its clubs. So let's go through uh, many of these. The What I think is the centerpiece club of the entire property, um, after you paid your uh, for your tickets, and by the way, they were paid for in booths that were taken from... Um, uh, from the train in for Wilderness, so some of the some of the um, uh, cabs that were part of the train there. At any rate, that's kind of a neither here or there story. But at any rate, once you paid, you got your ticket. By the way, and I should also say one more thing about the ticket. One of the things that was a big thing back then was that you could for, and I want to say I paid, it was like twenty eight fifty dollars for an annual pass to Pleasure Island, $28.50, considering that at this same time it was, what did we say earlier, $15.95? It was like, duh, just buy an annual pass. It was that cheap. It may have gone up to 30 or 35 by that time, but it was, the best way to just do Pleasure Island was just to buy an annual pass to the thing because it it just got you in and made that so much easier. Um, The first place is Mannequin's Dance Palace. This was the largest, one of the largest buildings for sure. Um, A large gathering place. You actually entered in uh, by elevator and the elevator would take you up to the third floor and you kind of worked your way downstairs as you kind of came into this uh, dance place. If you were to actually open the elevator doors at the first floor, you would have just plainly seen that it just led you right smack dab to the dance floor. But what they wanted to do was move most of the guests all the way up to the top and have them work their way down. Um, in this large gathering place, dancers posed as mannequins that kind of came alive dancing alongside of you on a massive stage, on a, on a stage above a massive turntable inside this three story building. Music that was provided here were basically the hottest contemporary sounds. Um, I even show a video of what this looks like. Uh, the lighting was probably the most central piece of this. This is where the first time, and I was really a big techie in my earlier days in the lighting field. This was the first time I saw lights that actually were automated to to move. Uh, it was a big... Uh, it was, um, well, uh, actually the temperature, once you turn the lights on, the stage lights, especially on the stage um, portion, it just, the, the temperature of the room would go up. It was so warm. And this place was crowded, but no, never so crowded as it was on Thursday nights. Why Thursday nights? Well, this was the hot place for cast members because it was payday. If you don't know, Epcot does not stand for experimental prototype community of tomorrow it stands for every paycheck comes on thursdays and on thursday nights young people who were cast members man they just they just filled that space and mannequins was the hot place to meet somebody you wanted to to get to know that was the place to be in town especially if you were a cast member. So Mannequins was, in my opinion, the centerpiece club of the entire place, but there were many others. One of them was Next Door, the Comedy Warehouse. This was improv comedy that featured a show originally titled, uh, I believe it was called titled Forbidden Disney, and they made a mockery of the Disney guest experience in this little show, and it was loved. It was a fan favorite. There were lines where you basically had to wait considerable time to to get into the next Comedy Warehouse show. The challenge with the Forbidden Disney show is that with repeated guests, again, that annual pass, cast members and so forth, they eventually turned it over to be more improv than a structured comedy routine. Um, Notwithstanding, uh, this was a very popular space, uh, more popular than it had space for people to, to come experience and be a part of. Comedy improv did not begin with the Comedy Warehouse or with Disney Springs. Its roots actually go back to uh, earlier days at Epcot. If you'll recall, if you've been uh, to the park during the 80s or 90s, they used to have a comedy improv group either in Italy or in the UK Pavilion. In Italy, it was called, I believe, Teatro de Bologna or Theater of Bologna. And I don't recall what it was titled, Shakespearean something over at the uk but they tied it to being a comedy uh well comedy troupe that kind of rolled in with a cart and they were part of the atmosphere and they did this comedy improv skit like they would do uh romeo and juliet in fact i i want to say they because romeo and juliet is a shakespearean thing they did it in the uk but i think they also did it in italy because i think that that uh that drama takes place in italy but anyway it 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 was something like romeo and juliet where they would have different individuals play different roles different members of the audience and that they would lead them through this theatrical retelling and it was drop dead funny they were um just terrific at what they did and it always drew a crowd and i have no idea why this act, doesn't, these acts do not continue to this day because in my view, they were better than just about any other act I can name around uh, World Showcase. It just resonated with people and people stopped and enjoyed their shows all the time. Now that's said and done. It wasn't long thereafter before, before Pleasure Island opened Then you had what was known as the Anacomical Players and they had their own little staging inside Wonders of Life and they did some uh, comedy improv related to, of course, the human body and anatomy and all that sort of thing. The thing that most people relate to when it comes to comedy improv is Citizens of Hollywood at Disney's Hollywood Studios. That premiered at the same time the show's the comedy uh, improv shows premiered at Pleasure Island, and of course, you had the various citizens of Hollywood. They were enormously popular, and uh, were all over the streets. Again, we could do and will do a whole podcast based on this. So when Pleasure Island opened up, at the same time, they were—I mean—they were bringing in a lot of comedy improv performers, and that. They utilized them for not only the Comedy Warehouse, but they also utilized them next door for the infamous Adventurers Club, which again was more of people in a period costume playing a role of doing comedy improv in that period, like Unto the Citizens of Hollywood, only this was the Society of Explorers of Adventures, and it was just all sorts of craziness where these people recalled tale, tall tales and adventures. Um, you explored rooms that came to life and you all toasted to Kungaloosh. Um, this was led in large part by Joe Rody, who really came up and built out this concept in principle. It was terribly popular and lines often backed up out of the club for people wanting to get in and be part of it. What they usually did is they would line you up into the more foyer area, and then they'd bring you into the library for a show, and then they'd get you out back into the street so they could bring the next set of crowds in there. I had uh, the opportunity of working with the Disney Institute, and as part of our programming, we would try to figure out ways we would use different places across Walt Disney World, and I use the Magic Kingdom, I use the Epcot, I use Studios, I use Typhoon Lagoon for my programs. I spent a lot of time going through uh, Disney, uh, Pleasure Island, to see how we might be able to utilize that space during the daytime before show hours at night. And let me just say, first of all, I don't drink. So that always kind of kept me out of the feel that this was the place for me because Kungaloosh was everything in that experience. But but notwithstanding, I do have a great appreciation for comedy improv and for the talent of these performers. And yet the facility itself stank to high heaven. When it wasn't open, when you'd come there during midday, it was a dump of a place. Usually not picked up from the night before or picked up completely. It was it was trashed and had to be reinvented every night. How it pulled off a fantastic show every day, every evening, every the the next night, it was is is truly amazing because honestly, um then and, and the the characters on the wall, the 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 colonel and the different face masks, these were simple puppetry. This was not There was no advanced animatronics really in it. Um, Something with the organ, I guess, uh, in the library made that come to life. But otherwise, it was pretty much uh, simple puppetry used by performers who would go back behind the scenes and would voice those characters as they came to life, as they worked them as puppets notwithstanding whatever however trashed it may have looked like during the day it was popular and successful at night and truly some of the most talented people in comedy improv worked the adventures club And people remained faithful, have continued to remain. Well, there's a whole society of explorers and adventurers, and even the concept of sea and the idea that, that, um, uh, pleasure, Meriwether Pleasure is a member of that society and that there's a larger group out there. We, we can cover that in another podcast, but Adventurers Club was very successful on many levels. But ultimately, what was its downfall is at the heart of why this did not stay open after, uh, and why it eventually closed. We'll come back to that later. By the way, what is um, what is the what was the comedy club is now pretty much the area for steak Orlando, at the Landing, and what is uh, the Adventures Club is essentially now uh, the Edison, um, which gives you an idea just how big that facility was. It was much more divided up um, in its days of being the um, uh, the uh, Adventurers Club. It was a very different looking thing back in that time. Now, um, next door is Maria Nenzo's, and, and that was really the home of what was originally, um, the Neon Armadillo Music Saloon. That's basically country and Western music. Um, I knew the band, they lived across the street. For many years, they lived across the street as some other friends of mine. Um, That space there eventually would be replaced by what would be known as the BET Black Entertainment Television Soundstage. As that country music group then moved to the Fireworks Factory And the name was changed to the Wild Horse Saloon, uh, where it was operated by um, Levi Restaurants and Gaylord Entertainment. The, um, The space that that was in at that time, that is kind of where the fireworks factory was. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. That space is largely gone because it created a dead end at the end of that street of pleasure island so whereas the other side you could go on past the uh the um past the west end stage and on to amc the other side just dead ended you unless you veered right and headed um earlier toward um um toward the main entrance off of the parking lot there is one major well there are two others but but I think of the original major entertainment venues, um, XZFR, usually referred to as Zephyr Rock and Roller Dance Club, uh, was where the Boathouse is now. And that was a terribly fun, incredibly awful idea because When you add a skating rink, a liquor uh, license, a lot of DJ music and this UFO in the shape of a convertible, lots of lawsuits are on the run very quickly. It, It just was a disaster to have all this combined. So it did not last very long and it eventually became the Zephyr Rock and Roll Beach Club in 1990, so just a year later. And DJs usually offered up music from the 50s uh, to the 80s. And by the way, um, the DJs, I knew them personally, many of them, they were truly some of the best DJs in the country. They were amazing. And uh, I utilized them for some of the work I was doing. That's a whole nother story, but an amazing story, a very funny set of stories uh, that i have to share on another day. There used to also be this kind of archway as you came in off the main parking lot um, past mannequins. There was also this kind of archway overhead and there was often a DJ that was uh, spin CDs, so to speak, um, during that time period um, up above there as well. Um, the beach club was very popular, always busy, lots of fun going on there um what most many people also remember the pleasure island jazz company and that should also be remembered as well but that actually didn't occur until several years into um the pleasure island experience what also people may remember is videopolis east you know there's videopolis out at disneyland which Utilized a lot of video screens and basically became the MTV at Disney. Uh, well, they brought that concept out to a very small space, played it out still on 170 different video screens in 1990. And, and that was supposed to be the place for the younger kids to hang out. Videopolis East was designed for the under 18 crowd who wanted some place to go dance. Yeah, that didn't last. It would later change in 1990 to a more progressive alternative music and renamed as Cage. That lasted a little while, and then Eight Tracks finally replaced it. Eight Tracks was basically the groovy look of the the 70s, kind of placed in that space, and it did well and stayed that way. It didn't have to fill a lot of people in it. It was a pretty intimate. Um, it was a pretty intimate space. Um, so it, it didn't take a lot of people to kind of fill it out as, uh, as an attraction, but those are the larger entertainment clubs that were offered at Pleasure Island. The only other major piece of entertainment, well, we should talk about two other things. One is, uh, the AMC theaters. Now this began in 1990 as a 10 screen theater. And, uh, you approached it from only one end. On, it was not as big as it is now, and it was renowned because the world premiere of Dick Tracy took place on June fourteenth of nineteen ninety. Here, um, everyone showed up except Madonna, of course, uh, for whatever reason. There was a whole lot of stuff going on. I've got a video, an interesting video of that premiere, on the site. You may want to check it out. But um, I remember for years later they had a banner hanging that this was the, where Dick Tracy premiered as if there were going to be other banners of other premieres that never, ever, ever took place. But AMC was a, a solid piece to that nighttime life at uh, at what would eventually become downtown Disney. And, uh, and it, it uh, held its own As well. The final thing we should talk about is the West End stage. Now, this is where live bands perform nightly, as well as the Island Explosion. The Island Explosion was Pleasure Island's own uh, dance group, and they would come out and perform there, as well as in mannequins. And what made that stage successful? Well, partly in the early years, they brought in a lot of fairly good-name performers in to perform. Pleasure Island, that was the draw. But then they came up with this concept of New Year's Eve nightly. Not necessarily at midnight, but definitely nightly, where the whole thing just erupted um, into a big New Year's Eve party. And that really took for uh, Pleasure Island. That was a major staple. Now, I've got another podcast coming behind this. It's gonna be a Disney at work podcast. And it's gonna talk about the story of how we got to New Year's Eve uh, and and that kind of party atmosphere at Pleasure Island. But for today's purposes, let's talk about a couple other things there. Uh, there was some shopping. Jessica's is was a store featuring the character Jessica Rabbit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. If you can go back to this era, you would have seen more Roger Rabbit merchandise than you could possibly have seen anything on Mickey Mouse. Roger Rabbit was everywhere. And what made this store really stand out is her signage had her in this big lit up sign up in the front of the store with her um, leg swinging back and forth. Later, this would be moved to the West End stage but uh during the years that there was a store featuring roger rabbit merchandise this was huge superstar studios that was a long time make your own video studio these were these were kind of new things back in the day these were hot ideas now they're kind of worn and stuff you can do on your own laptop front page star on the cover of your favorite magazine and then my favorite was suspended animation this is where you could actually find Disney animated cells, posters, prints, lithographs, really pretty cool um, collectible kinds of merchandise from the animation world of Disney. And, uh, and so that those were some favorites on the shopping side. Dining. Empress Lily was already there long before Pleasure Island showed up. But they kind of made this, because it was sitting on one end of the Disney Village Marketplace, they kind of attached it and and kind of considered it, as well as AMC, the bookends of the total Pleasure Island location. Now, during that time period, it would actually be taken over and renamed as Fulton's Crab House. <clears throat> uh, and that ran until 2016, um, where uh, it then took on uh, new ownership that we'll talk about uh, on another occasion. Then you had, in addition to that, I mentioned earlier, the Fireworks Factory. This was operated by the Levi Group until 2001. It was kind of the restaurant at the end of the street. It featured American dynamite barbecue. Um, ultimately, this was replaced by the Western Saloon um, and went away. <clears throat> but if you want to see remnants of the firehouse factory, the odd and strange place to go to is Typhoon Lagoon, where on on the side, maybe it's also a, on the body side, slide side, but definitely on the tube side of the mountain, you will see references to the fire to to crates that say Firehouse Factory and to dynamite or fireworks that are laying around that area. Supposedly, the idea is that things blew up and you know flew all the way over. I guess to Typhoon Lagoon. You had Portobello Yacht Club. Um, this is actually one of the things that has essentially remained over the years. Um, uh, it was also owned by, or ran by Levy uh, uh, Restaurants. I don't know if it's Levi or Levy Restaurants. Uh, they eventually dropped the title Yacht Club from Portobello and it was called Portobello Forever. And then as Disney Springs took on its own, it was retitled as Terralina Crafted Italian. Uh, Merryweather's Market, few remember this. There was a food court, again, next to Fireworks Factory. Operating from 89 to 93, and it was, I, I don't know how to describe something more pathetic looking in my life. It was like the worst uh, mall food court you could ever imagine. Nobody was ever in it. N- nothing was of interest that was sold that I can ever remember that was worth eating in that food court. Uh, it probably was the cheapest food you could find at Pleasure Island, but it was not in the least bit memorable it was replaced by the Pleasure Island Jazz Company. That took over that whole space and that became very popular. And then ultimately it was taken over by Raglan Road Irish Pub and Restaurant in 2005. So you could clearly see that a lot of the buildings, a lot of the facilities, the stores actually that were emptied out really became Paradiso 37. Um, and I, almost everything that there is very little that was crumbled up the, um, <clears throat> the beach Zephyr, uh, beach rock and roller dance club, beach club kind of thing that was torn down. And in its place came the boathouse. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, a fireworks factory ultimately was, and then the Western saloon eventually was torn down too to create a pathway through that area so those things went away but most everything kind of stayed in place planet hollywood is the last one we should mention it didn't actually show up until 1994 um and then in 1998 it was kind of considered part of the west side offering as as well as the amc restaurant but the Planet Hollywood, when it opened, I remember how big an event that was, where everybody was excited by the celebrities showing up um, to that that owned and were part of that restaurant experience. So very, very cool. Um, so, what killed Pleasure Island? To truly answer that question actually kind of requires you to understand how it actually ended up succeeding in the first place. Because when the doors opened back in 1989, it was not successful. And in fact, it did not do what people thought it might do as a fun, vibrant, nighttime entertainment district. Something had to be done to change it. The explanation for how it was changed and why it was changed and what occurred ultimately kind of leads us down to why it ultimately ended. This is one attraction, one experience that is completely gone from Walt Disney World. Not a rethemed land or anything like that, but a completely lost, removed concept. And we'll talk about why and how that happened in our next podcast. Well, that does it for this Disney at Work podcast. So glad you could join us. Appreciate you taking the time. Do check out our other podcasts because we've been talking a lot about recent events. Got on with the Florida legislature, with Bob Chapek, going throughout the company. Also, you'll want to make sure that you check out our Patreon group, the Wayfinder Society, where you can uh, explore Disney behind the scenes on so many levels and in new ways with interactive tools that you can enjoy on your phone or at home on your laptop. They're very cool video, audio, visuals, lots of maps, interactive tools. Check it out. They're actually, when you go to Disney, and- play.com you'll see a link to actually check it out and take a look thank you for being part of this disney at play podcast and finally in the words of Sinbad storybook voyage always follow the compass of your heart have a great day we'll see you real soon